You know, recently over the Facebook Marketplace, we just sold our family van, which was a wonderful blessing for us, served us faithfully for five years and took us all over the country and even brought us here, as a matter of fact. But now we have this vehicle, which, what is this? I even just said a term for it, vehicle. What is this, for example? Well, very technically speaking, this is a Chevy Traverse, which has a little bit extra seating, a little bit extra room for us, works great for our family car. But one of the things that I find interesting is that whenever we're going somewhere, we use a plethora of terms for it. We just say car, although it's obviously not just a car. Some of us still say van, although we don't really, well, we couldn't, we can't drive our van now, and we couldn't, didn't really drive it before. Some say SUV. Some say traverse. We call it different things as a family. But it's interesting because we all know what we mean. We all mean the vehicle which all of us can fit into and all of us can travel together and go from place to place. Now that may seem obvious, but bear with me for a minute. What is this? Well, some might say movie, and you wouldn't be wrong. You might say DVD, and you'd be very correct as well. Some might say a show. We actually, in our family, I'm not sure where uh, Amy picked it up, probably from her family. We still say, hey, let's watch a show tonight instead of a movie. Uh, if you're older, I still remember my grandparents calling it a picture. Although it's not a picture, it's a moving picture, but I like to go see that picture in my, uh, in my papa's Tennessee accent at the theater. Uh, all of them are correct. How do we know what we mean? Well, we have the benefit of our context. We have our own context that when we refer to things, we know exactly what they mean. And if we don't exactly know what they mean, we have the tools and we can figure them out very, very easily. I bring this up because context is incredibly important. If you've heard me preach, hopefully context has come into it. If you've heard any preacher, hopefully context comes into it. Context is king. Well, of understanding and meaning. Jesus is king overall, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Context is king, and the only way that words mean what they mean is because of context. And we have to keep that in mind whenever we have any words that we're trying to understand, Bible included. Now, I think most of us would agree that Jesus's context was the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures in which he learned and studied as a boy, was able to recite and, and talk with the teachers about when he was 12. And he brings all of that knowledge and understanding forward into his ministry. I don't think anyone would dis disagree with that, except we don't always include and really apply what that means whenever we're talking about Jesus and talking about his teachings. I bring this up because we're in the second week of a series on the parables. And the word even parable has its own context. And it also begins in the Old Testament. Well, what does that mean? The Hebrew word mashal, if I'm butchering that, which I probably am, I apologize if there's any Hebrew speakers out there, but the Hebrew word mashal is where we get from the word parable. Now, what does that mean? Because it doesn't seem like it's an exact fit. Well, mashal 
means to be like or even the phrase to use as a proverb. For example, in Psalm 28, 1, it says, I will be like those who go down to a pit. It's kind of a play on a simile and opens up the door for metaphors. It's used all through the Old Testament, and it's even just used as a phrase, uh, 10 times in Numbers and 8 in Ezekiel, that even just refer to someone speaking in Proverbs. For example, in Ezekiel 16:44, the word um, mashal is used, everyone will quote this proverb. literally says, everyone will mashal. And so we have this definition that means to be like or to use a saying, but it goes on from there. The word mashal also can mean, in a maybe a weird twist, to taunt, as in to taunt against a king. For example, in Isaiah 14:4, how the oppressor has ceased, or in Habakkuk 2:6, woe to him who increases, which is not his. Attach to this then also is lament. For example, in Micah 2.4, when he says, we are utterly, utterly ruined. But also you have the idea in here of God making people and making events a mashal. When it comes to Ezekiel 14.8, God's punishment of idolaters makes people mashal and a sign. It's the symbol of their ways. Also, keeps going. I know. Mashal can mean a prophecy. For example, even Balaam's oracles in Numbers 23, 7. Or to the extended conversations of Job and his friends. Those are mashals as well. Signs and prophecies. Uh, God making examples of. Taunting like a king like who's against God. Also, the similes and metaphors to be like, or even just saying a proverb. All of this, and I bring this up because all of this is under the definition of Michelle. Why this is important to us is because when the people who translated the Hebrew scriptures into the Septuagint which is a Greek translation of the entire New Te- of the entire Old Testament. And this is important to us because we gain uh, a lot of our understanding from Greek and Hebrew, actually, from that translation. Whenever we came across a mashal in the Hebrew, the Greek writers translated it parable, or parabole in the Greek. Kyle Snodgrass, a wonderful scholar, concludes that a mashal is any saying meant to stimulate thought and provide insight. And so if the Greek translators, every time they came across the word mashal, translated it as parabole, parable, we have to realize that all of this understanding is behind this word. You see, We often have defined, and I want to be careful here because I don't want to, I don't want to, I'll nitpick a little bit. It's worth it. We've defined parable rather incompletely and a little bit too conveniently as either an explainer story, simply a a moral or an example story. I talked about this last week. Or we've come to define parable, maybe you've even heard it preached this way, and no offense to any preachers who have preached this way, there is an element of truth in this, as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The problem is, is that that's not even, that's not true of every parable. 
And I would even argue, more I've studied this, that the parables aren't even really about heaven or even about whatever is next. They're at actually really earth-focused. Have you ever noticed that? They have to do with what's going on now and what's having to do with people's understanding of things now and eventually God's kingdom being instituted now on earth as it is in heaven. Now, you can nitpick and say, well, we're bringing the heavenly authorities and heavenly um, example. Yes, but when we translate it, when we, when we define it as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, we tend to detach ourselves from the meaning now when we tend to look at it as far as this is what it's teaching about me and how do I get to heaven. And that's not the point of parables. So if we come at it from that definition, we'll be looking for that definition and we'll be looking in the wrong place. They're all directed towards life on earth and more specifically, and more to finally fulfill this intro here, they all have a specific context. An incredibly specific context, which we need to know. For example, just, and I don't mean to be mean once again, think of your favorite parable. Got it? Now, tell me the context in which we find that parable. Meaning, what's going on? Why did Jesus say it then? to that group of people in that situation. Do you know? Some might. I'm guessing probably most of us don't. That's because we've taught parables as individual, moralistic, or heavenly stories detached from their context. Let's fix some of that today. For example, I invite you open to Isaiah 5 if you want to turn there while, uh, while I'm talking, I guess. <laughs> or you can pause me and whatever you want to do. They all happen in a very specific context. And actually, one of the things that I've learned in this series is that there are quite a few Old Testament parable, parables. I was going to say paral parallels, parables, parables, parapets. You can get off really quick. There are a lot of Old Testament parables in which Jesus knew and based his teaching off of, which are incredibly important to figure out the context in order to fully understand Jesus. Did you know there are Old Testament parables? Let's delve into them. For example, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let's read together. Isaiah says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on, fertile, on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and the people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, not neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow here. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Now, this may seem familiar. We're talking about a vineyard here. What's the context of Isaiah? 
out of curiosity. We're going to actually include verse 7, but don't read it yet! <laughs> What's the context of Isaiah here? Well, in Isaiah's day, the kingdom under Solomon's sons split, and the tribes of Israel and Judah split about 200 years before Isaiah. So in Isaiah's day, this is the current context, it was splitting, it had split 200 years before. So they have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has built all sorts of alternate worship sites. They have two golden calves uh, in, I knew until I had to say it, in Dan and Bethel, I'm pretty sure. Yes, that's right, read Amos. Uh, and Isaiah says, look, I'm going to allow Assyria. Isaiah's whole message is warning the northern kingdom, Assyria is coming, and they're going to destroy you and ransack you based on what you're doing if you don't turn back to God. And because of the unfaithfulness of the kings of Jerusalem, he's also going to take out Jerusalem in Judah, the southern kingdom, as well. And this is what this poem is all about. What's the point of this parable here? I can't help but notice, and I don't want to be facetious, that it's not an earthly story with the heavenly meaning. Actually, it's pretty earth-focused. Isaiah is saying, hey, this is what's going to happen here to you from heaven. It's heaven's story proclaiming judgment on the earth. What is this about? It's about a vineyard that God has planted and given absolutely every good chance to succeed. It's about how he has taken it, he's built walls of protection, he's cleared the ways, he's put the best vines in it, and all this vineyard has produced is stinky grapes, is exactly the, the Hebrew word, is stinky grapes, bad fruit. So I, the God is saying, look, I gave this vineyard everything it needed to succeed. This vineyard doesn't have much excuse. And so, as you go along, you notice I paused in verse 5. He says, now, I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. The reasonable response, someone might say, is, well, you know, just take out the bad vines and start over. Well, God's idea, yes, is to start over. But this is a parable. It's a bit hyperbolic. It's a bit bigger. He says, I'm not only just going to start over and replace the vines. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to break down its wall. I'm going to be it's going to be trampled. It will be a wasteland, not pruned or cultivated. Briars and thorns will grow. I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. Whoa! And the people are going, wow, you are serious about this. Hey, it's your vineyard. You want to do this? This is the point of parables. But then Isaiah says, the vineyard in verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness but heard cries of distress and there are actually Hebrew word plays on all of four of those justice bloodshed righteousness and distress which we don't pick up on which makes it very much a it would, it would get people's attention regardless of well it, if it was rhyming at people's attention but is getting people's attention because Isaiah is saying, hey, this vineyard, which God has said has had its best chance, I'm going to destroy it. People are like, yeah, yeah, you are that vineyard. Ooh. They get your attention. So, does this parable seem anyone familiar? Somewhat familiar? It should. 
actually, because it's pretty much the same parable that Jesus told in Matthew 21. In the ESV, it's called the parable of the tenants, or in some translations, it's called the parable of the evil farmers. I do invite you, if you want to keep a finger back in Isaiah 20 or Isaiah 5 to kind of keep keep tabs on things, feel free. I'm going to invite you open to Matthew 21. Now, we'll do this in reverse a little bit. What's the context of Matthew 21? If you just would even want to skim from the beginning of the chapter, this is an incredibly easy chapter to skim. Jesus has drawn into Jerusalem triumphantly. People have laid at his feet uh, branches and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. He's come into Jerusalem. And immediately, what does, what does Jesus do? He goes to the temple and <laughs> clears it out. And he says, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers by overturning the tables and the seats of those who were money changing in the temple. He immediately goes and makes a lot of friends among the religious elite. After that, then, he comes out of the temple and he curses the fig tree. And we'll get to that in just a second. And that actually leads to his authority being challenged by the religious leaders, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that launches into two parables. The first one is about two sons asking which one has done the will of God. And then this one in verse 33. And I do invite you to read along. And it will be up on the screen as well. He says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. Sounds familiar, right? But Jesus adds his own details and makes it applicable. Applicable. I always want to say applicable. People always correctly say it's applicable. Makes it connect to the people he's talking to and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to him. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we can have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, and this is Psalm 118, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, Jesus continues, the kingdom of God drops the parable and drops the, the metaphor and says the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, this cornerstone, will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him, meaning those not producing fruit for God. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was talking about them. Oh yeah. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because he led them to be, he, they held him to be a prophet. You see, what Jesus is doing here is that he is fulfilling the role of a prophet, speaking God's word to the people who need to hear it. What's the point of the parable? 
Jesus has come to Jerusalem to look for fruit from those seeking God. And he finds among those who proclaim, who say they have the fruit, who make it known they have the fruit, who have the authority of fruit, the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders, he finds nothing. He clears out the temple. He goes out and illustrates this with the fig tree. The fig tree was showing that it had fruit, except it was lying, and he curses it. And then leads to this parable, which is relating the vineyard of God from Isaiah 5 and what God did to that vineyard. Now, having that vineyard been leased to tenants, these people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, knew Israel, newer Israel, post-exilic Israel, and said, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who actually produce fruit. Like the tax collectors and the prostitutes in the previous parable, which to a Pharisee, oh, they're sinners. Yeah. You see it's the same parable, just applied slightly differently. Jesus takes it and uses it to bring the entire biblical story to a focus in Passion Week as he's about to be led to his crucifixion. That's what parables do. They make us stop, and they make us think, and they bring into focus something bigger, not just a bigger moral story or, or, an, exp or an explainer story. What is the point of this parable? It makes us stop, and it makes us think, what fruit am I producing? And is it one that would be given the kingdom of God? I said before, I'm back in our building this week, very on purpose, because oftentimes we get wrapped up in a lot of different kinds of fruit. We get wrapped up in the fruits of ministries, the fruit of fellowship, the fruit of preaching even, the fruit of everything that goes on here. This parable, and the one in Isaiah 5, its meaning is that God has set up his vineyard, his vine, which we could go on that Jesus is the, is the true vine, we are the vine. Yeah, it connects, guys, that's all I'm saying. Jesus and God have given their vineyard everything it needs to succeed, and they expect fruit. What kind of fruit are we producing? Is it kingdom fruit or is it stinky? And according to whose definition? Because sometimes the fruit we like to produce is not necessarily kingdom fruit. This is the point of parables, guys. This is the point of parables, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. It's not that we sit here and go, well, this is exactly that. It's meant to have us reflect and wonder, man, what am I producing? Because the lessons of Isaiah still apply. Things that are not producing the fruit that he wants might yet still be destroyed. But the point is I want you to get you today is that Jesus was basing his parables off of the Old Testament parables and using them, oftentimes updating them, using that foundation to be the prophetic voice 
in Israel. Without knowing that, without making that connection, the parable doesn't have the meaning it's supposed to. Now, hopefully, this little study here was worth something to you. And over the next four weeks, we're going to delve a little more into parables that do this connection. We're going to flesh out, not necessarily going through and, and exegeting every single one, but fleshing out this connection, fleshing out the Old Testament fulfilled in the New, fleshing out um, what parables do and having us reflect upon them and really asking questions of them, or rather letting them ask questions of us. You know what's interesting, just to finish off here, is that in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah finds himself in a vision, he finds himself basically in the throne room of God, and he's a little bit freaked out. You know, <laughs> you would be too. And he sees, <laughs> and he sees with a seraphim come down with a live coal, and he's afraid because obviously if you're going to get burned, what's going to happen to you? He does get burned. He gets the coal pressed on his lips and he becomes pure. His guilt is atoned for. And the Lord asks the famous saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. And God says, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing this Isaiah 6, verse 9 and following. He says, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And Isaiah says, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant, or until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, Ouch. Isaiah is basically there to proclaim God's word in such a way that Jesus uses his parables. Those that might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed, God actually says, preach my word knowing that they won't be. So that way they have every chance to hear. He says, how long until everything is destroyed? But he says, but... Though a tenth remains in the land, it will be again laid waste, but as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps where they are cut down, so the holy seed will be cut will be left in the holy seed will be in the stump in the land. What are the parables do we know that talk about the seed? As the word of God, who will turn and redeem and restore and heal. That's next week. I want to ask you to do something though. Think of your favorite parable once again. You got it? Turn to it and read it, but also think of the context and ask yourself, just for the last two minutes of the sermon, ask yourself for a minute, why did Jesus use this parable here to these people? And are there any other Old Testament stories that we know of that might be the foundation of this? I pray for the next four weeks as we delve into parables, our connection to Scripture, not just the New Testament, all the Scripture will be stronger, we'll have a deeper appreciation for what Jesus was doing, and we'll better understand not just what these parables mean to us, but what these parables mean and how they fit into teaching us still about the kingdom of God. Grace to you all.